Last time on Roundtable, you heard the words systematic theology used quite a bit. But what exactly is systematic theology? We're back here on Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable podcast, continuing our discussion of systematic theology and its value for the Christian church and its value for every Christian in the church. You heard in part one on this topic of systematic theology, its significance for preaching and evangelism, but for our listeners' sake, let's ask the simple question, what is systematic theology? Some of you may have bought or seen a copy of Louis Burkhoff's or Herman Bovink's Systematic Theology. Um, we can also think of John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion um, and see them as just a set of behemoth books. Um, but what's in those books? What is in a book of systematic theology and how is it arranged? Coming together once more to help us understand and answer such questions, returning our Old Testament professor Andrew Compton, Doctrinal Studies Professor Mark Beach, Church History and Apologetics Professor Dr. Alan Strange, and President of the Seminary and Doctrinal Studies Professor Dr. Cornelis Venema, uh, who you're going to hear dive headlong into this discussion first here on Roundtable. If I may offer just a kind of summary based on Gerhardus Voss, who addresses this question rather directly at the beginning of his biblical theology. It's interesting that Voss was first a dogmatic or yeah. a systematic theologian, and then he subsequently went into teaching in the Old Testament department in biblical theology. And just a little quick note here, uh, Louis Burkhoff took a little different route. He started out as a New Testament theologian. That's right. It's when he wrote his book on hermeneutics and some of his other early writings. And then he moved into the arena of systematic theology or dogmatics. And that's a good move, actually, mm. because these are not alternatives in the sense of in any way opposed to each other. The one builds on the other. Charles but, Hodge did that. Sam <laughs> Hodge was an Old Testament yeah. scholar. Yeah. As a matter of fact, B.B. Warfield also right? from New Testament okay. to political systematics. I think Boss captures the distinction as well as the interrelationship well. He says the difference isn't that the one is systematic and the other is unsystematic. Any engagement with Scripture, even if it be directly with the biblical text, is always going to read texts in their relationship and see connections. So all of theology, if it's academic and it's intense and an engagement with Scripture, is going to be interested in how this relates to this, so-called connecting the dots. But what really gets at the difference is he says, biblical theology, broadly considered, aims to unfold based upon an historical line, the progress of special revelation or of the history of redemption from uh, creation, subsequent to the fall, in the arena of God's great works of redemption fulfilled in Christ, uh, leading to the consummation from Genesis to Revelation, you follow a line, it's linear, in its organizational principle. Uh, by contrast, systematic theology looks at the whole, doesn't disregard uh, the progress of biblical revelation, but aims to draw it together synthetically in what he calls a topical way. It draws a circle 
around the whole of what the scripture teaches regarding distinct topics, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of humanity, the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of the spirit, the doctrine of the church, the doctrine of the last things or eschatology. And it tries to offer, to the extent that that's possible, we can only approximate the richness of what's given to us in scripture. It's a perennial task, never finished. We're always on the way, making new discoveries, seeking to revise and, and engage in a fresh and new way with the scriptures. But it seeks to give as best as is possible what might be called, if I may use the analogy that's sometimes used here, I think Michael Horton uses it, a kind of map, hmm. a road map, which is a pretty important thing to have if you want to get from one destination to another. Uh, it lays out and gives a sort of broad representation of how this location relates to that location. And it's part of a, a grand uh, geography. Not surprisingly, the typical language of topics or of loci, as they're often referred to, are actually geometrical uh, analogies. They locate mm -hmm. on the map of the fullness of God's revelation of himself where we find ourselves and how this aspect of what God reveals is interrelated with this. If it's a grand narrative taught, uh, ultimately rooted in the purposes of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, you're going to have to interpret all of Scripture in a broadly Trinitarian way as a fulsome revelation of the respective works of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the course of redemptive history. And that's what uh, dogmatics seeks to do. Uh, if I may throw one last observation in here, I think it's a very false uh, dichotomy to pit system over against narrative, hmm. which is commonly done as though narrative is an alternative. Mm -hmm. Well, what's the storyline? What's the plot? From whence have we come? Where are we going? How is the story resolved? And who is directing and superintending? Who's the author of the script? All of those are the kind of questions, inescapable, that uh, systematic theology in its own distinctive way aims to contribute uh, to our unfolding of the riches of what's given us in Scripture. Yeah, that connection between biblical theology and systematic theology. I mean, you mentioned Gerhardus Voss, who, who seems to be... Uh, if, it seems to be making a case for the, for the vitality of biblical theology into an established setting of, of systematics. And, and several decades later, uh, John Murray, in an, in an essay on systematic theology, almost seems to be uh, making a case for the vitality of systematic theology in the, in the context of, of a very accepted biblical theology. And we see how these come together. I, I think it was George Lindbeck who critici criticized what he called epic theologies, where it was this attempt to make, a, make something tidier than the Bible itself in a way. But the connection to biblical theology allows avoidance of any kind of reductionism. Uh, we, we, we understand this text and its development and its flow so well, that the, the organization takes account of that. Well, if I may uh, appreciate the criticism for a moment. Oh, sure. There have been, I mean, systematic theology is a big category and there's all kinds. I mean, not just, not just kinds in the sense of uh, this is more semi-Pelagian and this is more Augustinian, but 
even approaches to sure. the discipline so that in the history of the discipline, it's, it's an evolved discipline and Dr. Venema well articulated uh, from a reformed confessional set of convictions what that discipline ought to look like and what it's about. But the way it developed was, if I may put it this way, uh, systematic theology developed because human beings want to know stuff. Hmm. When, when you study the Bible, it's just instinctive. Well, I'm reading the history of, I'm reading Genesis, I'm reading these other books of the Pentateuch, I'm reading the Old Testament prophets, I've got a hold of the Gospel of John. How does this all hang together? And so you end up with what came to be called commonplaces, hmm. the big topics. And when you gathered the biblical materials from the whole of divine revelation, you started, you know, you started packaging these things. This seems to relate like this. There seems to be a certain consistency. What about these inconsistencies or things that don't seem to fit as easily or tidily? Mm -hmm. There are untidy things in theology. There's, you know, texts that seem to point to universalism, and there's texts that clearly take us away from that. So mm -hmm. you have to interpret text in context and next to another text. So it is an open discipline, and I, I don't think anyone at this table would argue that system in systematic theology means this tight, hermeneutically, uh, I can't get the word out, sealed, this tightly sealed... Uh, a little package, you know, it's vacuum packed, and we got mm -hmm. you know, the, mm -hmm. we got it all wrapped and figured out. I think it's important that we've hit big common topics and we've talked about how they relate well to one another biblically and logically, sensibly. But here's another side to dogmatic theology, systematics. It's also it engages in doctrinal polemics. Hmm. It it refutes error. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, that's a huge part of where doctrines get uh, articulated. It, it's written in context. So what's a big problem on the block within the life of the church or the world at a given point in history? Will, so it's not simply me and my Bible, I read it, I come up with this few. It's the Christian and the church living in a world in which questions emerge, and uh, a fresh reading of the Bible brings new questions, sometimes in the form of error, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. now you need to, so dogmatic theology has also this polemical, even a philosophical side to it. It, it, it wants to avoid being governed by philosophies, but it inevitably has to use philosophical categories in order sure. to communicate to the world about us. And I think we just ought to be open and upfront about that. And, and I, th I think the temptation to nice, tidy packages that Dr. Beach is referring to is the lure of rationalism. Mm. And we're very aware here in our systematic theological instruction that that always looms. In other words, what we're committed to is revelation, the revelation of God. Mm -hmm. God has spoken. 
And Hmm. we're not simply reasoning autonomously from our own resources and saying, well, if this is true, then this must be true. No, we're grounding it all in Scripture. Mm -hmm. And maybe, maybe I could say this at this point in a way that my colleagues here wouldn't say it because they're too modest. But I think it's necessary to say, and I want to say for our listeners, that I believe we here at Mid-America Reform Seminary, as well, if not better, than anywhere else, and I'm pretty familiar with what's going on in the Reform world across the world, that with the teaching of my two colleagues, they have a great sensitivity to exegetical theology, to biblical theology, to historical theology, mm-hmm. as they do their systematics. It's not mere speculative. It's not novel, simply, but it is fresh and insightful. Um, and just one more thing to say in that respect, um, we also have a course here, when you speak about ecclesiology, and of course that's going to tie in with ministerial studies, but we have a course here uh, in um, a polity course where we take the ecclesiology and actually go into our particular church orders. Mm-hmm. And we actually go into how does this work in the life of the church that way. We certainly talk about pastoral care and counseling on the one hand as a ministerial course, but we also talk about how do our church orders embody the scriptures. And of course, they're really embodying what we believe the principles of our ecclesiology as is put over there. So we're very, very concerned to move this through always from the theoretical to the practical. Um, But I just have to say, I think you see this in the works of my colleagues. Dr. Venema has a number of works out there. And people have noted in his works that for a systematic theologian, he's particularly good at exegesis and then biblical theology as well as historically as a PhD in Calvin. But as an end product, here is good systematics that is not forgetting that God is incomprehensible. Some, some rationalistic systematic approaches, which I think tend over towards, in our tradition say, towards a kind of hyper-Calvinism, can you know, try to tie everything up too nicely. Uh, but we don't do that. And I think you see, I just, I mentioned Dr. Venema particularly because his works are, are widely available. And I, I would encourage people to consult them and to see how closely tied biblically we are here uh, to, to this. Dr. Beach has a fine study also on uh, the institutes, for example. And there again, you can see the nexus between Uh, between the Bible and what we're doing in theology. And Calvin, uh, both of these men have done a lot of work in Calvin. Calvin, above anybody, sought to be a biblical theologian in the sense that he he was governed by the word. How do, do, this is, maybe as we we explore this a bit more, how how do some of these other other disciplines tie into systematic theology? Of course, we're grounding it in, in the inerrant, infallible word of God. Um, but we interpret that Word of God as part of a community, as part of the Christian church. How does church history uh, come to bear? Um, or maybe even, how did, how did the church begin to formulate uh, this approach to Scripture in such a way that now we can go to a bookstore and buy Burkhoff or buy Hodge? Well, let me just jump in and say this as the church historian. Um, I'm very much helped here, again, by the way my colleagues teach their courses. At some seminaries, the 
the systematics courses are, are either just very heavily exegetical, maybe unbiblical theological. Mm. At other seminaries, uh, they're, they're speculative and mm. very novel and inventive. Um, I think what's, what's very helpful here is both of these men are also historical theologians, so that enables our church history, yes, to touch upon some of the most important issues in historical theology. But church history isn't the same as historical theology. Yeah. It's a different discipline. Church history is supposed to see the church situated across time within the broader world. And God, of course, is the one who ordains everything that comes to pass in both among his people and among the world as a whole. So in church history, we're always looking at what is the outplay of the Christian faith in the world of the 16th century, of the 20th and 21st centuries. How is this, how is this uh, living out? But you, you ask about uh, early examples. Of course, typically the first systematics is said to be uh, De Principis of Origin, which is, if you know much about Origin, uh, <laughs> he was quite philosophically uh, influenced and it is rather speculative. And so you do see earlier examples. This is, I think, one way of, of seeing some of the problem. You do see both in the ancient and medieval church um, some of the systematic theology uh, I think actually Aquinas in his Summa is trying in some ways to be a little more biblical than some of the ones that come before him. Now we can argue about this, that, and the other, but the point is, is you did you did have a lot of, particularly in the ancient church, you had sometimes an overweening um, kind of influence of, of, of this or that strand of Greek philosophy, uh, which was, for example, in Origen, very dominant. In Origen, for example, he comes, Dr. Beach mentioned universalism. He's one of the real founts of believing in apokatastasis. There's a big, we got we to gotta justify ourselves as theologians. There we <laughs> give you a word there, in which basically Origen believed that the whole world is ultimately redeemed, including the devil. Uh, mm. So, but, but well, we say, where does the Bible teach that? Well, it doesn't teach that. <laughs> That's part of his philosophical imposition on the text. But again, when you talk about, it isn't just Reformed people. I talked about briefly my childhood. I was brought up as a dispensationalist. And if there's any group of people that ever impose something on texts, it's those good people, the dispensationalists. <laughs> so it, it's not something that's simply, you know, refers to the Reformed. Well, I think it's important in the discipline of systematics to know when to pause and dig in exegetically on a, a fine exegetical point and where it suffices uh, what is called proof texting, hmm. where it's, it's not a great deal of controversy what these texts come to or amount to. But then what the discipline requires is that you are aware of a history of discussion and the debates surrounding that. And uh, I think we seek to cultivate that here in all of our systematic dogmatic theology courses. So there's this, uh, there's exegesis, but it, they're not exegesis courses. And I have mm -hmm. seen dogmatics practice that way which you make very little progress in a doctrine because you're really doing biblical theology in the name of systematics. And yeah. I, I, I don't think that's the approach we should take. 
But again, I think good dogmatics courses then do bring up the disputed points and do bring up the debated points and uh, help walk students through the ins and outs of those kinds of controversies. But hopefully, it then also does something pastoral, does something uh, doxological, Hmm. does something practical for discipleship. Uh, How can you teach something to the newcomer, the novice, if you're blurry on it yourself. In fact, I feel like I learned my dogmatics best after I was in the pastorate Mm -hmm. and actually teaching week to week. It's like, oh, now I really get this. And of course, the longer you're at it, so. And and that's that's an interesting point because, you know, we, we, we didn't have to wait until Calvin's Institutes, or, or even a little, little earlier, you know, Aquinas' Summa. We didn't have to wait till then uh, before we started getting systematic treatments of the contents of God's Word. I mean, the, the early catechetical sermons, the early catechetical preaching of the, of the church fathers was aimed to instruct new Christians in the, in the Christian faith. And here's the backdrop, uh, the historical backbone, as it were, of, of what eventually uh, leads to... A systematic theology with its loci and the order they're in that we we have today. Well, I think we need to always remember that the essential component of the calling of a gospel minister and ministry is fruitful, effective teaching. If a pastor minister is to be a teacher in the church and a communicator of the biblical gospel, then they have to be engaged with the scriptures, uh, directly reading in their preaching, expounding and applying the biblical text. But they never do that as an isolated bead on a string. They do that as members of the church. Mm -hmm. And it's a holy Catholic and apostolic church that has been engaged with the scriptures and the reading of scripture from the very beginning. So... I like to say to my students, the purpose of the course, Theological Foundations, is to give them a strong sense of the unity and integrity of the curriculum, why we need biblical studies, why we need ecclesiastical or historical studies, why we cannot avoid the systematic questions which try to draw together the fruits of exegesis in continuity with the church's engagement with scripture historically. We're not Campbellites. Mm -hmm. We're going to read the Bible as though we were the very first person to read it. Mm -hmm. That would be to deny the presence of the Spirit leading the church and its engagement with Scripture throughout the centuries. But all of that's for a purpose, so that the so-called practical theology division, or what we prefer to call the ministerial division, is broadly, whether it be in evangelism, missions, pastoral care and counseling, preaching, teaching, catechetics, It's busy with the Word of God. And what Mm -hmm. Dr. Beach said earlier is particularly important. I sometimes say to the students, why do we need systematic theology? Well, because the church faces new questions. The church hasn't finished its reading of Scripture. There are new challenges in the modern age. And if you have a minister who's not well-equipped intelligently to address questions, which he's going to be peppered with, uh, from every quarter he's going to be asked questions, if he's a mouthful of teeth, and he hasn't much in the way of a rich grasp of scripture and 
the treasury of what's been given to us in the history of theology. Um, I use the analogy, I don't know if it's a good one in class, I have a certain daughter who's particularly precocious, teaches at a college, <laughs> won't say anything more about her, uh, but I'm wanting to thank you guys when you exit the seminary and continue to engage intelligently with the scripture, uh, we'll be able to minister and pastor someone like her. And she's not going to be satisfied with pablum, with yeah. superficial answers to difficult questions, uh, with a kind of a simplistic, not simple, but simplistic gospel presentation. Uh, I also remind my students of the uh, dictum of Harnack, the liberal, uh, classic liberal of the 19th century, uh, dogma and its conception and development is the fruit of the Greek spirit on the soil of the gospel. I say, I would rather put it this way, dogma, that is the systematic in the line of the church's confession, summary of what the scriptures teach, is in its conception and development, the fruit of the church's engagement with scripture mm. in confrontation with error and new questions that are, and that's what keeps it fresh. It's not just a repetition of the past. It's an engagement with a task in a contemporary context. That too is something with which the students, particularly in dogmatics, need to be acquainted. What is that context? What are the questions that are most pressing today? Where are the present day debates and questions? So you even need to know the history of dogma. Why at certain periods, think early church, the doctrine of the person of Christ or of the Trinity, uh, later on, issues pertaining to Christ's work of atonement. Certain questions come to the foreground, and they need to be familiar with those questions if they're to be effective in the field. It's remarkable how many of those questions keep coming back, and in the most unlikely of places today is just in pop culture. I can remember, it's probably been 20 years ago, that Joan Osborne recorded a song, uh, What If God Were One of Us?, and As a matter this, of fact, he was. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then even, and now even, and, and there's songs like that. Even more recently, one pop singer has a song, uh, God is a Woman. These are questions that have been asked throughout church history. Well, not asked by the church per se, but, uh, but have been uh, inquired. And the church has had to formulate an answer to that from Scripture. But how, how interesting, these questions are still being asked by people all around. And we continue to, uh, to confess our faith confess this faith about this God who has done these things uh, to a world asking questions like these. And this is the answer in part to some people in our circles who will say, well, we have Calvin's Institutes. We, you know, we have Hodge. What do we need new systematics for? Every era needs new all of this. We, mm -hmm. Because particularly in systematics, it's dealing with the new questions that are being raised. Now, these new questions may have relations to, oh, we know there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, but that's no part of knowing our history. But we do need, and we certainly think of what's gone on in our culture in the last mm -hmm. decade, the last five years, but the last 10 to 20 years. Think of what's gone on in our culture in a general way. And there's plenty of work to do. And we're seeking to do it here at Mid-America Reform Seminary. We're seeking to apply this to everything. One observation that's a little off track from where we've been tracking, and that is it does have utility for preaching, evangelism, pastoral care, but it also has this. You love God with your mind. Yes. Yeah. 
He made us thinking creatures. He gave us the capacity to analyze and look at and discover. He gave us curiosity to know him and enjoy him forever in Jesus Christ, uh, to glorify him this way. And thus, Anselm saying, I believe in order that I may understand. We have an inquisitiveness and part of dogmatics and all the theological disciplines, I would hope, is loving God with your mind. So why do we need it? Well, why not? Why not love God with our minds? Why not discover what the Bible teaches? Why not uh, explore? If John can't, who stood before the incarnate Christ, says the books, all the books in the world couldn't fill out the testimony about Jesus, then mm -hmm. why would we be finished because uh, Calvin wrote some institutes or Charles Hodge? He never quite got that ecclesiology in there the way I wanted him to. But anyway, <laughs> uh, he wrote when he wrote. Uh, every, it, you can't pass faith on for someone else. We have to believe ourselves, and which means we have to believe doctrines because, yes, we respect the church and we inherit something, but you have to discover it for yourself. Yes, that's valid, right, and true. It's holy and good and righteous. <clears throat> so, in other words, what I'm getting at is when people ask pure pragmatic questions, they're actually infected with an American spirit that's foreign mm -hmm. to the Bible. Where would you go on the Bible that the only reason... Paul cares about anything is for its practical result. Well, he cares about practical results. And so dogmatics engages our culture, engages, ought to, engages uh, modern errors, etc. But what about sheer love for God and wanting to know and enjoy him and, and glorify him? What about that as part of what drives people yeah. in the theological disciplines, including dogmatic theology? great line from Van Hooser's latest. He says, theology has acquired a bad reputation largely because theologians have not always made it clear how practical it is. Before it became a university department, theology was done in, for, and by the church and was done to help people mature in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's Christian growth. It's Christian maturity uh, that well, I, it's I brought think, about. I think that's absolutely critical and it takes us back to where we started. One question that I cannot escape is why is it that in the North American context, in the evangelical church especially, if we can define what that is, uh, from the time I entered the ministry in 1982, some many years ago, first book that came to, into my mailbox was a book by Robert Schuller, hmm. The New Reformation, Freebie, hmm. Self-Esteem. Uh, self <laughs> why is it that in, in no period of history has there been more intense and deliberate engagement with the question, how can we evangelize? How can we communicate the gospel in this culture? How can we grow the church and really reach out with the biblical gospel? And all kinds of uh, church growth institutes have been established and all sorts of work and labor and energy has been put into it. And if you fast forward a generation later, in the twilight of my teaching uh, in seminary, uh, we have churches that are emptying out, a culture that is becoming increasingly post-Christian, and not only the dumbing down of worship, but the dumbing down of the church's grip 
on the one word that is ultimately important. Uh, so it's not a question of one-to-one, -one, a simplistic formula for how this infuses and enables the church to be the church God calls it to be. But I think that testimony speaks very broadly to the point Van Hooser is making. Even the quality of the church's worship. How can you worship God if you don't have a sense of his glory, his majesty, yeah. the unsearchable riches of his grace? Uh, without that, uh, the God whom you worship is so small uh, that you can't do it with a great deal of energy and enthusiasm, and you become tired and bored with it mm. uh, rather quickly. So you have to turn to all other kind of words and strategies to keep people's interest. How can you worship God if you don't have a sense of his glory? Poignant words spoken by Dr. Venema there at the conclusion of this recording. As you heard these brothers speak, I'm sure you're getting a clearer sense of how important systematic theology is, not just for professors and pastors, but for all those in the church. And it's not as daunting a field of study as it might seem to be, but as an exciting venture into studying our God and all the spheres of theology as found in Scripture. Well, next time we're going to have a segment on how systematic theology comes to bear in the classroom here, specifically at Mid-America, both in the fields of doctrinal studies and biblical studies, and what our students take away from that as they aim to enter into pastoral ministry. Stay tuned next time here on Roundtable.